Hey there. Welcome back. This week I caught up with Emma Beals. Emma cut her teeth in 2012 by setting up shop at the Turkish-Syrian border. And in the years since, she's focused on conflicts in Syria, Iraq, and the rise of ISIS, often with an eye towards aspects of the conflict that tend to get overlooked, like control over wheat supplies or aid distribution and the war over resources there. Early this year, she co-wrote an exhaustive investigation for the Atlantic Council into the siege tactics used to break rebel-held East Aleppo. Among other prestigious awards and fellowships, Emma's the 2017 James W. Foley World Press Freedom Honoree, as well as a trustee of the Frontline Club in London and a co-founder of the Frontline Freelance Register, working to improve safety for freelancers in conflict zones. Tell me how you got your start in Syria. Okay, well, when I studied journalism, and this is something I didn't realize until much later, I studied journalism and years and years ago, and the woman who taught me journalism was a... She was Serbian, and she had been a reporter um, in the war in the Balkans, and she had fled, and she'd fled to New Zealand, and she wanted to have no byline for a while, so she'd become a journalism lecturer. And I was in her first ever class. So she turned up all sort of raw edges and, you know, hanging outy bits. And it didn't occur to me until later that actually that rawness had an intense appeal to me as a kid in New Zealand. Um, so that was how I understood journalism. I mean, in a six-month course, we discussed propaganda and the fog of war and all of these things that were, in hindsight, pretty ridiculous to be teaching to a class full of Kiwi journalists mm-hmm. because they're going to do the court pages and the sports news. and um, Those aren't going to be especially relevant, but I loved it. Um, and her... And another one of my lecturers, my development lecturer, said, well, you know, you're from Balfour nowhere. You need to go and learn about the world um, before you could be useful, really, to anyone. So I did that. And I travelled a lot and had a whole other career. And then, sort of about five or six years ago, went back to journalism, which I'd done a bit of in New Zealand. Um, And it was during the Arab Spring, and I did a bit of journalism in London. And... I had been going to start a PhD on Syria, um, a media studies PhD, looking at the way that social media was being used in the conflict, because uh, I thought that was quite an interesting process of democratization of information. Um, and then I was going to do all this ethnographic research where I followed war reporters around and like really understood from their perspective what influence this was having on them. Um, and then... So I started the process of, um, like, hostile environments training and things to do that piece of research, actually, um, while I was doing journalism as well. And then I realised that it was a very poorly veiled attempt to go and be a journalist there and that maybe I shouldn't do the PhD and I should just do what was quite obvious um, to everybody else who was sort of quietly laughing at me. It was kind of like putting a toe in the water rather than just jumping in, and then I thought, well, that's a bit ridiculous. And so I did that, and I'd never done the PhD. And uh, why Syria? Did you think about going anywhere else during the Arab Spring, or was there something particular? I had thought about going to Libya, um, but... I don't know if you get this, but I get, like, a gut feeling about countries, you know? Um, Like, there'll be a a region in the world and I'll want to go to particular countries and not to others. And there's no 
particularly explicable ex reason for it. Um, but some places are interesting and some places aren't. Um, and Syria just sort of... Grabbed you. Grabbed me for some reason. So set this up for us when you first go to Syria. What year is it? What is the conflict like? What do you understand about it and how do you learn how to cover Okay, so I, um, I had been getting back into journalism and doing a bunch of it. Um, and so I went to Turkey first off um, and sort of build up contacts just by being there. Um, so you're in Gaziantep on the I, No, I was in Kildas. Okay. So this is 2012. There were loads of freelancers around. You would go for breakfast and there would be like 12 freelancers eating Miniman. And it was there was this great community about it and all of those things that had really, you know, brought the whole freelance... Freelancing in the Arab Spring was, was about the journalism, but it was also about the community that was involved in it. And... Um, I mean, that, this was 2012, so that was still a thing in Killis. I mean, that died off later on when everyone stopped coming. But at that point, there was loads of people around, people going back and forward. And even if you didn't go into Syria, you could still do stories on the border and learn from other people and build up your networks. And um, So that's what I was doing at that point. And at that point, the war was still hopeful. It was like... You would knock around Killis, and yeah, there was all sorts of seedy elements um, in the town, but um, Aleppo had not long entered the conflict. It had been split down the middle. The countryside had sort of fallen um, to the rebels for the most part. There were refugees flooding into Killis and along the border. Um, but everyone kind of felt like the war was a temporary thing still. It seemed like something that there was this momentum behind the opposition Obviously, it had been going on for 18 months or so, so it wasn't wasn't going to be like Libya quite, you know, it wasn't a quick fix, but it still seemed um, like something that was temporary and that it still hadn't reached the point of brutality that we see today and of sort of um, grinding conflict and complexity and all of those things. So it still... You, you would meet commanders and they would be these jolly chaps and they would be the brother of your friend's uncle or something. And, you know, it was all... Um, Light-hearted is probably the wrong word, but it was still quite... Um, hopeful. Yeah, I mean, hopeful is the right word. Everyone sort of felt like this would end soon. If you did some journalism about it, if you went to the refugee camps that were terrible and you wrote a story saying scud missiles were landing on people's houses, then someone would do something about that and everything would sort of start to get better. I mean, that was still the attitude of people there. You could still go across the border in jeans and a shirt and a, you know, a casual hijab just for politeness. Um, and people would be pleased to see you and people would help you and... Um, I mean, obviously all that changed and it got much darker and much crazier quite quickly. But at that point, it seemed, it was interesting and exciting and it didn't seem as awful as it, it does now. Not, not just from my point of view, but from the Syrians' point of view that I was sort of yeah. meeting. Yeah. I mean, I think you once described it as saying that, uh, that it was this great grand adventure until it became the worst thing ever. Basically, I mean, that sort of, I think that was true for a lot of our community, though. Um, 
in a lot of those wars, it was like everyone I talked to who has covered Libya thought it was, you know, this great grand adventure until people started bleeding to death. Um, And it was the same with Syria. Everyone was going in and out every day and they, you know, were having this great time. And then it got really dark really fast. Um, And almost before you noticed it, I mean, it was getting dark around us in a way that we perhaps didn't quite fully appreciate and maybe should have, but I don't, also don't think that other people appreciated it. I don't, you know, I, were it just our generation that had missed that? Okay, that was on us, but I feel like everyone kind of missed that with Syria. So what kind of focus, stories did you focus on instead? Um, things like, well, just the, the environment, um, or trying to trying to do stories that actually got some resonance. I mean, I, I remember going to Aleppo once and doing a story for USA Today about a specific suburb of Aleppo um, and tracing the history of this particular suburb because I'd been there a year before and there were, it was full of life and I came back a year later and there were 500 people and there'd been 200,000 the year before. And it was a residential area and it had been totally cleared out by the barrel bombing campaign. So rather than sort of writing a story that says, oh, blah, blah, Aleppo, um, writing the story of this particular suburb and the people in it and what had happened to it. Because I think you want people to understand what that means, you know? People live in a suburb. They know what it means to if all the houses around them became empty. It's difficult to find those ways to get people to connect with the foreign war, you know? Um, And I guess ideally you want them to do that because if nothing else, you want them to finish reading the article. I was in Kellis and this German guy came up to me in this toy store. I was in a toy store and I was buying a water pistol for this friend of mine. It was his birthday the next day. And this German kid in a safari suit comes up to me and starts saying, Bomba, Bomba, um, are you a journalist? I thought, this guy is trouble. I'm out of here. All right, so I'm just going to jump in here and help summarize what happened. Turns out the guy was a wannabe reporter who went to Aleppo alone and ran into trouble. The journalist community in Kilis, over the border in Turkey, was pretty small and tight-knit at the time. And Emma and others found themselves wrapped up in the effort to find him and get him out, which meant a lot of talking to desperate family members, and calling around to German embassy people and other officials, only to learn that they weren't much help. The guy eventually turned up eight days later, but it was a scary lesson, which is that nobody really knew what they were doing when it came to getting kidnapped people out of Syria. There's no guidebook to go by, and lessons learned from conflicts elsewhere were of little use in Syria. The reality of what they were up against had shifted, imperceptibly, into new and terrifying terrain. What I learned in the process was that that, backstop doesn't exist um and there was also so much that we learned in the process of doing that about how to run an investigation into something like that that when the next one happened I sort of said oh well I could give you a little you know I can tell you what I learned from doing this other one and when somebody is in that situation because this was obviously in 2013 I mean, that summer was so crazy, and I was administrating these sort of Facebook groups that um, give people information, but it was also the summer that Egypt exploded. So people were getting 
arrested and attacked in Egypt and then coming to me and saying, you know, oh, how do we get our crew out of prison? Or we just got chased down the street with safe, you know, blades by civilians or the taxis are like driving people to police stations and telling everyone they're a spy. Now we're sort of desperately trying to tell everybody what to do in Egypt. And meanwhile, like half of the press corps in Syria is being kidnapped and people are calling me going, ah, what do we do? Like so-and-so has gone missing. And I was sort of meeting these security guys on the border who were there to find, you know, one of these missing journalists. And they were making it up as they went along because they were used to fishing people out of Somalia or Kenya where there's a transactional situation. So everybody was making it up as they went along. Um, and as I said, we didn't clock how bad things were getting, how quickly around us until it was sort of too late. So in a lot of these cases, we, I mean, none of us realised how dark it was getting or the, or how um, deeply ingrained these jihadist groups were in the area, um, the pressure that Syrians were under to like, chop us out to um, the highest bidder until much, much later. So we, I mean, we did approach these investigations in the beginning with this kind of hopefulness that if we could find where they were in the first 48 hours or the first week or the first two weeks and we'd start the conversation, then every, we're going to get them back by Christmas or by, you know, Mother's Day and everything would be great. It, would, it hadn't occurred to anybody just how dark the situation was. So we're all running this, like, DIY KRE situation on the border with with just a profound lack of understanding about what it was we were dealing with and you sort of have to understand that families and friends and so forth are terrified and don't want to do anything that could possibly compromise the safety of their loved one because you know unlike your loved one dying in a car accident or something, there you ha you feel like you have some control um, over the fate of this person that you care about, which is a a profoundly fucked up thing to sort of experience. And if, and and of course, with the benefit of hindsight, looking back now, it's quite obvious that we had very little control, and that very little of what we did or didn't do at the time would have had much impact at all. You know, it was a bigger, much bigger game. Tell me about your work very closely with some of the cases. Um, because you've done some reporting afterwards on this particular cell of jihadists and how that was evolving at the time. But, of course, you didn't know any of this in the moment. So what, what was your first-person role with trying to figure this out? So I was in Aleppo the week that Kayla Mueller and Stephen Sotloff were kidnapped, which is something that has been very strange to get my head around in the last couple of years. But I went to Aleppo that week. Um, while I was in Aleppo, ISIS took the last road back to Turkey, so there was no way back to the border. Um, I had to give advice to the rest of the Syrian journalist crew saying, don't go to Aleppo, Turkey. You know, all the roads to Turkey are uh, controlled by ISIS um, from Aleppo, <laughs> which was terrifying. Um, so basically I made a, 
gunned it for the border and um, tried to avoid the ISIS checkpoints. Got stopped by one of them. I was wearing like a full niqab, black gloves. I mean, it was covered head to toe and I was terrified. And I, and I was so paranoid that I'd made my drivers paranoid. So they had, we'd been driving across paddocks and farmland and avoiding roads where we could. We went really early in the morning of the first day of Eid thinking that perhaps these, you know, very religious men would be observing Eid. But of course, that's not really how they roll. Um, and so we eventually sort of came across this uh, checkpoint. Did you start with like 15 guys just to... No, we started with a full car because I had said, bring all the armed guys in the car, please. You know, I'm very scared. And um, so we start with this full car and then we kept stopping in these towns and be like, oh, say goodbye to Ahmed. He's going to his mom's house for Eid. Say goodbye to so-and-so. And this went on until I was the only... There was the driver and a commander in the front seat and then me in the backseat all alone, um, <laughs> which wasn't really what I meant. Um, although, in the end, it wasn't the worst thing because when we did eventually get stopped, I kind of, you know, looked down and away from the men in a very demure fashion and they explained that I was the wife of one of them and we were going to, to somebody's house and there wasn't really any problem. And I'm pretty sure that 30 seconds lasted for about four hours. I was... I think I stopped breathing and we kept driving in the end and I sort of collapsed on the back seat <laughs> and the the guy in the passenger seat turned around and said, oh, the Islami no kill you and holds up this grenade and he was going to pull the pin and throw it out the window and um, that was the whole backup plan. So what was going on? You know, some of your reporting, some of Ben Dab's reporting just touched on this group that was involved in a lot of these kidnappings. What have you been able to distill in hindsight about what was going on on the Syrian side? So around about this time was when um, John and Jim were, were kidnapped um, and then there was uh, David Haynes um, and an Italian who, who were kidnapped a couple of months later. So it seems that there was this group that were near Atma. Um, there were two brothers that were involved in it. So there was we start to get a little lost in the weeds here with places and names. But the bigger picture is that what looked like a random string of disappearances was actually a coordinated campaign by a small faction of extremists targeting and kidnapping Western journalists and aid workers. The traditional security thinking was not to tell the media about this. The fear was that more attention could drive up the ransom cost, and revealing exactly who the kidnapped people were could complicate the process of trying to get them free. But what they didn't realize is that the kidnappers knew exactly who they'd abducted. It was the start of a carefully executed policy laid out by the nucleus of what would become the Islamic State, a faction recruiting foreign fighters who would later spearhead attacks in Brussels and Paris. And not knowing that, but foreign journalists in Syria in more danger. So it wasn't clear that this was like a very specific plan by a, a specific group of very badly intentioned people. We really, we just didn't know that this is what was happening. And I mean, um, yeah, I just remember that being just this huge shock that these guys were all together. And even things like once the Europeans started coming out, suddenly realizing that there was a difference in, in ransom payment strategies and what that might mean. And, and even that wasn't clear. And, and you know, the, the Spanish get released. And, and you know, that's what we think, that's great news. And then the French get released and that's great news. And then you start to think, hang on a minute, 
everyone's coming out in country groups and then they keep coming out and so on and, and then you start to realise, oh, <laughs> the ones who have countries that pay are coming out. Um, and even that was, there was a penny drop moment. Like I remember vividly the day that I realised what was happening. Set that up for us. Um, I don't, the, the part of the day I remember is being on the phone to somebody else involved in it and just screaming down the phone about it, you know, just, um, just sort of having realised that the Europeans are all coming out and there was only a couple left and sort of being incensed that the Europe, that the, the Americans wouldn't budge from this, this idea of not paying when it was quite obviously working, um, <laughs> thinking, wow, they're, they're just going to be left there on their own. And like, how can this happen? You know, is this, is this actually happening? And, yeah, I just remember pacing with my horrible burner Novotel phone, just shouting about, just, you know, ranting like a sort of a, a crazy rage fueled person. But that, I mean, that's the part of it that has been the hardest to get over or deal with over the last couple of years has been that period from when the Europeans left until James was killed and then the rest were killed. Um, yeah, just what, what they felt and thought and that's the part that keeps me up at night. Yeah. Generally, I've heard that Diane Foley had said that they were frustrated because the State Department was saying, hey, you know, being very intimidating about this, and that, and that, in some sense, that has improved, and that uh, there was a, a a much more of a diplomatic effort now to provide information to families. Do you feel like that's gone in, in a good direction from that point? Yeah, I mean that has changed massively, um, and that's been a real credit to to Diane and to the other families involved, is that they channeled that anger um, and that that upset into making sure that the next family had a better experience and and they're all exceptionally gracious um, uh, and compassionate people I have sort of the greatest respect for all of those families because they didn't want a pound of flesh you know all of the anger and vitriol that came out in the media wasn't because they wanted to make somebody else suffer for their suffering they wanted to make sure the next family had a, a different set of choices than they did and um, they succeeded. So they managed to change, you know, the policies. So you have a, a hostage fusion cell where all the interagency working goes on. So the different departments within the American government, which are all huge and very independent of each other and normally, um, work closely together on hostage cases, which is kind of what was happening in Britain. So what was interesting about those two experiences was that while they have the same policy about ransom payments, the Brits and the Americans, the, Ameri the British families were not upset with the government because they felt that, you know, the COBRA meetings had happened and all the agencies had worked together and that, the you know, it had been taken seriously at a high level. And within the context of the policy, they had been listened to and cared for and... and you know, whatever could be done had had been done. Um, 
And that, to me, was the curious point, wasn't the difference between the Americans and the Europeans, it was the difference between the Americans and the Brits, despite having the same, you know, prognosis for the individuals involved. Mm. Um, so the American government now has this hostage cell that works very closely together. They also have clarified that, you know, they won't um, prosecute families for paying ransoms. Um, I don't know whether that would have helped or, or not, because it was extraordinary amounts of money that were being asked for and to raise that you have to you have to drag other people into it you have to make ordinary americans complicit in paying a ransom to you know a group like isis who are doing terrible things and you know everyone has their own individual opinion about that as as something that's appropriate or not your career now you've, you've gone in some interesting directions um you wrote this piece about grain in uh <laughs> In Syria, in the conflicts of Syria, you, you did a really interesting series for The Guardian that was basically looking at the way that Assad controls aid that's coming into the country. Uh, he's sort of staffed a lot of the groups that are there in the middle uh, with close friends and allies. I believe his family, his wife's charity is a beneficiary. I think there was a, a quote in there about uh, an area that was under siege and was not getting food deliveries and, and would not get food aid deliveries until they had prepared their relationships with the regime, so they've used food and aid distribution as a weapon of war, essentially. It started at the beginning of last year where I, I was trying not to, you know, mess around in the region quite as much as I had been. Um, and I had all these, like, little texts that I had been trying to cover or, or think about for a while, and it, pulling back slightly from the day-to-day, -day, from being in the region and writing the news and writing about the thing that's right in front of you. I had these sort of lines of inquiry that I had wanted to cover but hadn't had the time and space to do so. But I think it was interesting because no one's looked at wheat as, as a primary commodity, and it has been in Syria to such a huge extent. Um, and same with the age. And again, it's about... It, it's sort of wonky, but it's wonky stuff that affects people and their day-to-day -day prognosis for getting up and feeding themselves and going about their life, um, rather than which group controls which front line or road. Whenever anyone talks about commodities in Syria, you still think oil. Well, I mean, if only Syria had some bloody oil, there would have been something done about it a long time ago. I mean, they have a little bit, but like, it's not really the big story. Um, which is where the wheat thing is interesting. If you actually look past the nonsense and you look at the fact that, you know, the jihadis were taking the grain silos first and then blowing them up when they left areas, um, or that Iran and Russia are giving massive credit lines in the form of freaking wheat supplies to Syria, you know, oh, maybe that's a thing that matters. You know, maybe being able to feed people matters. And that's where the aid thing became interesting to me was like, the fastest way to piss a bunch of people off is if they're hungry, right? So there is an implied political element to aid in that if there is aid available through the government side to all of these people, that has a benefit. Um, and that's where those sort of weird lines of inquiries, which might seem quite disparate, do actually fit together. Um, there is a bigger point to it. One of the things I think that's problematic with the current narrative is that 
it becomes this, it, we've moved from sort of regime change to stabilization. And yes, absolutely. Everybody needs Syria to be stabilized, including Syrians of all political persuasions. But um, that loses sight of the fact that this is um, a government that turned its military against protesters and dropped scud missiles and barrel bombs on civilians for years now that has, as Amnesty reported last week, like hanged political prisoners um, in one particular prison and all across the country or arrested people, intimidated them. There's a huge security state since Aleppo fell. Like In December, eight, over 1,800 people were arrested in Aleppo alone. So that kind of... Um, sense of abhorrence about the behaviour of the government side is being lost in this argument about terrorism. And of course terrorism is terrible. Um, and of course we want to get rid of ISIS and it's not great that Al-Qaeda have got a stronghold in the area and all of these things. Um, but since 2014, there's been this kind of outsized focus on ISIS. So tell me about this Atlantic Council report that comes out tomorrow to synthesise the whole thing in like two minutes or less. So this report is a, an exhaustive investigation into the last six months of Aleppo. So looking at the siege, the way the ceasefires and diplomatic um, channels were used cynically, looking at attacks on hospitals, indiscriminate attacks of all kinds on civilians, looking at um, disinformation, the way that you know there was an attempt to kind of militarise the civilian population or somehow discredit those that were bringing information about what was happening there. Um, and create doubt in the broader narrative about the crimes that were committed against the people of Aleppo. Um, and then about the evacuation. So trying to dig into some of the things that happened there and look at um, disappearances, arrests, executions, um, the whole evacuation process, and, and create like a dossier. Like, here is what happened. This is what was done to break Aleppo. Um, yes, it's back under government control, but let's start to analyse a little bit what, what that entails or what had to occur for that to happen. I mean, what, what's happening in Syria now? What does the next few years look like? And also, fundamental to all of this, journalism, uh, documenting war crimes, who gives a shit? I mean, is it going to make a difference for anyone at this point? Is it just something that we do to provide posterity with some record that we've borne witness to? Or is there any hope that any of this shit makes a difference? I think we should care about war crimes and we should attempt to improve our international governance systems so that there is a form of accountability and that when we say never again, we mean, you know, not again, um, rather than being sort of shorthand for, I feel sad about this. Um, surely that's what we should be aiming for. I mean, it's quite clear that the UN is, the Security Council as it currently stands isn't, working to defend um, the the peaceful existence of peoples around the world. It would be a mistake for the West not to come out heavily on civilian protection issues um, in any kind of negotiated settlement for Syria. And whether that's civilians living in besieged areas coming back under the control of the government in the major cities of Damascus or Homs, or the civilians that are all being bused to Idlib or live in Idlib, um, where there happens to be this Al-Qaeda presence, which the West is increasingly involved with getting rid of. Um, 
those people need to be protected in any kind of solution and sort of I feel like their needs aren't being readily addressed in any of the discussions that people are having uh, about what will happen sort of to the future of, of Syria and particularly the people who live in Idlib are, they're in a very difficult position but it's been obvious for a number of months that that's going to be the case. Those of us that cover Syria sort of, sort of since 2014 almost like, ISIS is almost a separate issue, if you know what I mean. Like, there's no doubt that the West and whoever else is going to continue to try to get rid of ISIS. I mean, it's a, it's a huge priority. So looking at what happens to Syria almost needs to um, ignore that fact um, and, and address what happens in the rest of the country. Mm. Um, I think there is a solution that is like a negotiated political solution that's certainly not ideal but could work. But it would involve some <laughs> hard conversations over the next while. And it all involves a side going. So if Assad continues to refuse to go and the Russians can't make him, well, good luck. Would you do it again? Would you? I mean, do you think journalism is worth it in the scale of, of a conflict like Syria? I mean, yeah, you have to go. Because even reporting on these things that are happening now, if you've been and you've made those relationships and you know what the place looks like and all of that, so you have a different approach to it. If people want to make shitty political decisions and not hold ourselves accountable, that's, I mean, that's one thing. But they can't say they didn't know, and that, that's always going to be important. <laughs>